Well, as we look to the Word of God this morning, the Spirit of God kind of directs my thoughts. By the way, I, the Spirit really directs my thoughts on what I'm going to say to you on Monday sometime after I preach Sunday night. So somewhere between Sunday night when I'm done preaching and Sunday morning class at 7 a.m., the Lord has to give me something to say to you. Um, that means a short night for me usually on Sunday night. But it's always exciting to sort of wait on the Lord. And as I was thinking and meditating and praying and asking the Lord what I might share with you, I was drawn to an Old Testament passage. And I want to have you turn to it, 1 Kings chapter 3. You know me on Sundays, if you're part of Grace Church, uh, to usually teach in the uh, New Testament, out of the New Testament. That's the main thrust of my life as a minister of the New Covenant. But I don't want to leave the Old Testament out. And I, I was drawn to... The Old Testament again this week as I was last week when we studied in Isaiah. But in 1 Kings chapter 3, I want you to look with me for a moment at verse 5. In Gibeon, 1 Kings 3, 5 says, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, this is what he said to Solomon, Ask what you wish me to give you. Boy, what an incredible opportunity, right? What do you want me to give you? Then Solomon said, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David, my father, according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee, and thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. He's thanking God for the fact that he exists and that he is king. And now, O Lord my God, Thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not now know how to go out or come in. In other words, this job, frankly, is way over my head. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. Because of the situation I'm in, he says, give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? In a word, Solomon asks for what? Wisdom. Go over for a moment to chapter 4, verse 29. Now, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. What does that mean? He had an immense capacity for information. He had a tremendous ability to discern that information, distill it down, and he had a great skill in applying it. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. And here's a list of the really smart guys. Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Calcal, sounds like a cough syrup, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He not only was wise, brilliant, but he had a marvelous capability with the language to design pithy, dramatic, proverbial statements 
and also was a great lyricist, able to compose songs. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He was a naturalist. He understood the created world. He spoke also about animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Quite a guy. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He was the first encyclopedia, a walking encyclopedia from all over the world. The kings came to hear about his wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 12. And the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. There was peace between Hiram and Solomon. The two of them made a covenant. That was the king to the north. One other in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, says God answered his prayer. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Now here we find a man who asked for the greatest thing that you could ever receive, wisdom. Even the philosophers of the world recognize that. Back around 52 A.D., Cicero, the ancient philosopher, said, Wisdom is the best gift of the gods. Wisdom is the mother of all good things. Scripture certainly affirms that. You remember Proverbs 4, 7 says, Acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring, get understanding. When God pensively cried out over the apostasy of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, He said, Oh, that they were wise. Job, you remember, diligently sought for wisdom because he said it was the highest and the most noble and the most valuable reality. The psalmist, you remember, in Psalm 2.10, called for the kings of the earth to be wise. God granted to Daniel, it says in Daniel chapter 1, knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament prayed that every Christian would receive the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of their heart being enlightened that they might know. God, then, has put a tremendous premium on wisdom. The question then comes, who has it? James asked that in James 3.13. James said, who is wise? Who is wise? Who really has wisdom? And if we can find out who has wisdom, then we need to find out what it is and how you get it. And that's the little pursuit that I'd like us to go on this morning. In order to understand about wisdom, we are best fitted to suit ourselves into somewhere into the wisdom literature, which means Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So if you'll go back there in your Bible, we might start in Ecclesiastes, because this is sort of the backside of wisdom. This is a book about the people who don't have it. Ecclesiastes. And I just kind of introduce you to the wisdom literature and then we're going to ask some specific questions and give you some specific answers. This isn't going to be a sermon this morning, just kind of a Bible study around the theme of wisdom. So stick in the Word with me and uh, let the Spirit of God minister to your own heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16. The, uh, the basic essence of Ecclesiastes is it is the musings of human wisdom apart from God. 
Ecclesiastes is man at his best, philosophizing about life apart from God, apart from revelation from God. This is man as he views his own world. So in verse 16 of chapter 1, I said to myself, says the writer, very likely Solomon, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, that is, to know the opposite of wisdom. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Now, when Solomon was given wisdom, he was given a great measure of earthly wisdom, human wisdom, discernment, intellect, capability to amass a a large number of facts, distill them down and discern their proper comprehension and relationship to each other and then make some application in life. But he says that wisdom, as immense and as massive and as far-reaching as it is, frankly brought me a lot of pain and a lot of grief and a lot of problems. It really was a striving after wind. When I got it and grabbed it, it really wasn't much to hold on to. That's the bankruptcy of purely human wisdom at its best. In chapter 2, we see a little more about this man without God, this man who has a kind of wisdom that is not divine. I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I found wisdom didn't fulfill me, so I tried hedonism. I tried pleasure. Ah, it didn't bring me any satisfaction either. I said of laughter, ah, it's madness. And of pleasure, what has it accomplished? I explored with my mind to stimulate my body with wine. So I went from wisdom to pleasure to alcohol. And I said, I'll give that a shot. And while my mind was guiding me wisely in how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. Life was so empty. I had all this wisdom. I had all this money, all this wealth, all this pleasure, and uh, all these other things, and it didn't mean anything. So, verse 4, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to, to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. I possessed flocks, herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and, and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers. I had my own band, pleasures of men, many concubines. You see a word that keeps popping up there? What is the word? Myself. He had everything but a relationship. He owned everything, but he didn't have a relationship with anybody, namely God. Verse 9, I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. I stayed as smart as I was when I started. Everything I saw, I took. Verse 12, I turned to consider wisdom, madness, folly. Verse 13, I saw that wisdom excels folly. It's better to be smart than stupid. Well, that's good. At least he knows that. And he goes on to talk about the emptiness, the vacuous nature of human wisdom. Really a sad 
tail. And you want to see the sum of it? Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. A very interesting statement. He says, Well, so I congratulated the dead. What? I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who never existed. But this is a despairing guy. The only thing better than being alive is being dead. The only thing better than being dead is never having existed. You mean you've got all that and that's your view of life? You'd be better off never to have existed? He says, I've seen it all. It's all vanity. It's all striving after wind. Doesn't mean anything. That, my dear friends, is the sum of human wisdom. This is not an idiot here. This is the wisest man that ever lived on the earth. This is the guy who has the greatest intellectual capacity of any man up to his time and maybe since. This is the man who has used his tremendous capabilities to amass an unbelievable fortune. This is a man to whom come all the great minds and kings of the earth to hear him just open his mouth and dump out the pearls. This is a, a man who has reached the epitome of education, erudition, wisdom. And he says, the only thing better off than my condition is death. The only thing better off than death is never having existed. See, human wisdom at its best offers nothing. That's one of the things that you can be thankful for among many in being in a Christian college environment, in knowing the Word of God, you realize, of course, that universities of our country and all around the world are filled with people who at best have the futility of human wisdom, which is nothing but striving after wind. So we come then to the importance of knowing the wisdom of God. And I just want to give you a handful of points you might want to jot down about the wisdom of God. Spiritual wisdom. Let's talk about spiritual wisdom. We've already said that human wisdom is bankrupt. By the way, James, if you want a comparative scripture in the New Testament, James chapter 3, verses 14 and to 16, describes human wisdom as characterized by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance, lying against the truth. He says it is earthly, natural, demonic, jealous, selfish, ambitious. It brings about every disorder and every evil thing. So there's James' definition of human wisdom. But let's talk about spiritual wisdom, all right? And I'll give you a handful of points. Number one, human, uh, spiritual wisdom is not naturally acquired. It comes from God. It comes from God. God is the source. And if we had the time, we could spend hours literally on scriptures that point this out. But let me just give you a few. Job, in the wisdom literature, chapter 9, says this about God. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. God is the one who is truly wise. Wisdom resides with God. So if you're going to get true wisdom, you have to get it from God. In Job 28, I think it's verse 23, God understands its way and He knows its place. He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heaven. God knows everything. God understands everything. God comprehends everything. God is the res residing source 
of wisdom. One other out of Job 38:36 says of God that he has put wisdom in the innermost being. He has given understanding to the mind. In other words, if you have wisdom, it came from him. If you have understanding in your mind, it came from God. God is the source of all wisdom. One of the prophets points this out, just to give you another text. Daniel 2.20, Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. Daniel 2.20. Spiritual wisdom resides with God. That's just a very basic point. I'm thinking, thinking on my feet too much, but in Romans 11, I can't resist the doxology there. Verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of whom? Of God. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So wisdom comes from God, point one. Point two. Point two. Even though it comes from God as to source, it must be pursued by man. It must be pursued. It doesn't just drop on your head. There is a pursuit involved. Let me show you this back in Job. This is one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Look at Job 28. Job 28. This is a tremendous chapter. You really need to become familiar with it. You who are here in the pursuit, I trust, of wisdom. You know that it demands an effort. The truth of God may be available to you, but it is not received without effort. Listen to chapter 28 of Job, and I'm just going to flow through it. Just follow the tremendous thought here. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust, and from rock copper is smelted. By the way, they were into a lot of metallurgy very early. This may be the first book written, the first book of the Bible ever written in the patriarchal time, the time of Genesis, and they were into all of this kind of thing. Notice verse 3. Man puts an end to darkness, and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in gloom and deep shadow. What is he talking about? He's talking about mining. He's talking about mining. What do you mean he puts an end to darkness? He burrows down into the ground and brings light into the darkness. He puts an end to the darkness that is deep in the earth. He is mining out the silver and the gold and the iron and the copper. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot where nobody ever walks. He drills a deep shaft. And they hang and swing to and fro far from men. What does that mean? Once the shaft is dug, they lower these guys down there with their handy-dandy little picks to hack away at the depths that the shaft reaches. And they swing on ropes. The rocks are sources of sapphires, and the dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows. No bird has ever been down in those depths. No falcon's eye has ever caught sight of it. The proud beasts have never trodden on it. The fierce lion has never passed over it. Man goes way down. He puts his hand on flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. You say, what is that talking about? Listen, he has the capability to explode the rocks. You mean to tell me in the time of the book of Genesis, they might have had explosive power? Indeed, I mean to tell you that. Keep in mind, 
that evolution is not true. Man is not getting better. He's getting worse. He is less comprehensive today, less intelligent. Even in the early times before the flood, he lived to be 900 years of age, which means that he lived uh, to accumulate in his own friendship circle at least eight generations or more of people who were also living hundreds and hundreds of years without the dramatic effects of the fall that we experience at this time. In that pre-flood time, even after the flood immediately, man lived at a level of intellectual capability and skill that we may not even understand fully today. So here he is overturning the mountains at the base. He's hewing out channels through the rocks. His eye sees anything precious. He dams up the stream from flowing. And what is hidden, he brings to light. This is the whole mining process. Man is involved in this unbelievable process. But look at verse 12. What's this all about? But where can what? Wisdom be found. Here is man going to these unbelievable lengths to find sapphires and gold and silver and copper and flint and iron and all of that. And he goes to all of this effort, but where can we find wisdom? And you know where Job is in this whole deal. He's trying to figure out his simple life problem, right? He says, we're so sophisticated, we can burrow into the ground, we can sink mine shafts, we can get all this stuff out of there, but I can't find anybody who's got any wisdom. Man doesn't know its value, verse 13 says. Nor is it found in the land of the living. Boy, that's good. You aren't going to find it in this world. You're not going to find it in the secular world. You're not going to find it at the great universities of the world. It isn't there. It's not around. They don't know it. And the deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. And you can't buy it. Pure gold can't be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed at its price. It can't be valued even in the gold of Ophir, which was the best. You can't buy it with onyx and sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it. It can't be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. The acquisition of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia can't equal it. It can't be valued in terms of pure gold. Well, where then does it come from? Where do you get it? And then comes the answer in verse 23. God's got it. God has it. God is the one who has it. Oh. So if you want wisdom, first of all, you know that God has it, and second, you have to pursue it. You go after it. The way those people went after precious metals and jewels. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning. That's good. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. He'll go after it. He'll pursue it. He'll chase it. Proverbs chapter 2 is a great chapter to read about the pursuit of wisdom. So is Proverbs chapter 3. Let me just note 3.13 in Proverbs. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Wisdom comes from God and wisdom must be pursued. Must be pursued. Proverbs 4.13 says, Take hold of wisdom. Do not let go. Guard her 
for she is your life. What a great statement. Proverbs 4.13. Don't let her go. Guard her. She is your life. One other thing in Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 8.12. This is really marvelous. This is a personification passage where wisdom is personified and wisdom speaks. Chapter 8 of Proverbs, verse 12. Very interesting. This is, a, this is wisdom bragging about herself. This is wisdom telling you how wonderful she is. Verse 12. I, wisdom, that's the introduction, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. This is wisdom talking. And wisdom says in verse 14, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. And it goes on like that. If you pursue me, you'll find me. All right, let me give you a third principle. Wisdom is with God, and it has to be pursued. And a simple conclusion would be you pursue it by pursuing whom? God. Principle number three, then. Wisdom is grounded in knowing God. You can't pursue wisdom which belongs to God apart from knowing God. So we talked about the source, which is God, the search, which is the pursuit. Now let's talk about salvation. No one can know true wisdom without a true knowledge of God. If God is the source of true wisdom, the only way to gain the wisdom is to know the God who has it. Listen to what it says in Psalm 32.8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I'm the one who's going to teach you. If you have a relationship with me, I'm your teacher. So any pursuit of wisdom begins with the relationship to God. In fact, it's um, Psalm 36, 9 that says, In thy light we see light. It's when I know you, God, that I know wisdom. Anybody who doesn't know God isn't wise. And young people, that again brings me back to saying that is why Christian education is the only true path to wisdom. The only true path. You cannot be wise without the knowledge of God. You can observe some phenomena, but you cannot properly comprehend and understand that phenomena apart from God. And when you stop to realize that the entire educational structure of our nation is built on atheistic, humanistic evolution, which not only doesn't know God, but doesn't want to know God, then you understand something of the problem of discerning true wisdom. Wisdom comes from knowing God. Listen to what Alfred Whitney Griswold, president of Yale University, who died in 1963, listen to what he said. The source of better ideas is wisdom, and the surest path path to wisdom is a liberal education, end quote. Now, you'd think the president of Yale would know something, but he knows nothing about wisdom. 
How do you get to be the president of Yale when you haven't figured out the first truth, and that is that wisdom resides with God, not with liberal education? Listen to André Gide, died in 1951, great French novelist. This is what he wrote in 1947. Wisdom begins where the fear of God ends. End quote. If you can just can religion, you can get on with wisdom. That's secular education. That's secular teaching. They're going to pass along a lot of information, but no wisdom. Some human wisdom, which with God, according to 1 Corinthians 1, is what? Foolishness. Man's philosophy diametrically opposes God's wisdom. They can't know wisdom because they can't know God because they won't know Christ. When we talk about Christian education, we're talking about the true path to wisdom. Wisdom. And if you're going to get anything in life, don't get knowledge. Get what? Get wisdom. Spiritual wisdom. Supernatural wisdom. God's wisdom. Another erstwhile errant philosopher goes under the name of Phil Donahue. Phil Donahue says this, quote, Fundamentalists are stupid, arrogant, believing what they believe is right, and that they know the truth and will escape hell and enter heaven. End quote. Fundamentalists are stupid and arrogant. Wrong. Just the opposite. Typical worldly wisdom. So without a knowledge of God, man can't know wisdom. So all his information is useless. All his information does is make him the man of Ecclesiastes who says, I got it all and I know it all, so what? So I tried pleasure, no big deal. So I tried wine, no big deal. So I got a bigger house, no big deal. So I went after a lot of luxuries, no big deal. The only thing better than my condition is to be dead, and the only thing better than being dead is never existing. That is the uselessness of human wisdom. There's a fourth principle I want to give you in this little pursuit of wisdom. Wisdom is from God to be pursued, and that means pursuing God, so it is grounded in knowing God to start with, and that's salvation. Secondly, it is developed by fearing God. Wisdom is developed by fearing God. Now, I don't want to take the time, but I can just give you one quote and tell you it's repeated about a dozen times in Proverbs and Psalms. It is this quote. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. If you want a location for that, try Proverbs 9.10 and many other places. Proverbs 1.7, 129, 2.5, 6, and on and on. And in the Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you're going to be wise, you learn to fear God. What, what does that mean? Well... First of all, I know wisdom is with God, therefore I pursue God. In my pursuit of God through salvation, I come to the knowledge of God. And now if I want to truly activate that wisdom, I want to live as a saved person in the fear of God, right? What does that mean? That means I revere God. That means I honor God. That means I live in reverential fear. I live with a sense of awe and respect. To put it simply, I worship God. 
when we say, you know, somebody, ah, oh, that guy worships his car, or, or that girl worships her boyfriend, or, or whatever, we know what we mean by that. That it's an almost total, inexplicable abandonment to devote oneself to this object. And that's exactly what fearing God is. Reverential respect for God means my life is an act of worship. I adore God so much. I am so in awe of God. I have such an unbelievable reverence for God. I so totally respect everything He is, stands for, and teaches and desires. I am so totally given over to God that all my life flows out of that kind of devotion. That's where wisdom comes from. That's where it comes from. God has it. You get access to it by salvation. You start to tap it through reverence and worship. There are a lot of Christians who aren't nearly as wise as they ought to be because they have never really lived that kind of worshiping life. In Job, again, I was thinking of verse 28 of chapter 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And, listen to this next line, to depart from evil is understanding. If I really fear God, I'll depart from what? From evil. If I love God supremely, I hate what offends God. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? If I love someone and you might say, oh, that guy just worships that gal. He just committed to her, devoted to her. Then obviously he would hate anything that would offend her. Same thing in a relationship with God. If I revere God and fear God and adore God and love God and respect God, then I hate whatever dishonors God, whatever blasphemes God, which puts me into the whole category of evil. So, wisdom is from God to be pursued, therefore, by pursuing God. It is grounded in knowing God in salvation. It is deepened or developed by fearing God. And young people, somewhere along the line, you've got to come to the point in your own spiritual life where you're not being coddled and propped up by your parents or your professors or your roommate or your RA or your RD or somebody else, but where you begin to cultivate the love of God in your own life. Where you begin to worship God and adore God and respect God because that's what causes you to depart from evil. All right, there's a fifth principle, and it flows right out of that. Wisdom is not cognitive, it is behavioral. Wisdom is not cognitive, it is behavioral. What I mean by that is, wisdom is not knowing something, it is doing it. Plain and simple. Listen to Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The same statement over again. But then this. The people who have wisdom are those who do His commandments. Who do His commandments. Wisdom in the Bible, and you need to get this kind of down in your mind, wisdom in the Bible is never theory, it is never cognition, it is always behavior. Behavior. So it isn't as simple as coming to some place and learning facts about the Bible. 
Wisdom is apprehended demonstrably, that is, visibly, when it shows up in your behavior. The Old Testament, by the way, the words for wisdom, shakam and shakma or chakma, used, I think, over 300 times. And the stem of that Hebrew word means to express a person's approach to life. It's how you live, not what you know. When the Greeks talked about Sophia, wisdom, they were talking about theory, concept, cognition, not behavior. When the Bible talks about it, it's behavior. It's behavior. The Bible places absolutely no value on knowing something that doesn't change your life. The Bible places no value on something cerebral or something creedal. Nothing is known scripturally until it shapes your life. You don't know it until it shapes your life. You're not wise until it shapes your life. The way of wisdom, then, young people, is the way of obedience. Wisdom is lived out in my life. Lawrence Toombs, writing in the Old Testament, Theology and Wisdom Literature volume wrote this. Wisdom is to be found with God and nowhere else. And unless the quest for wisdom brings a man to his knees in awe and reverence, knowing his own helplessness to make himself wise, wisdom remains for him a closed book. Well, that's a simple and direct statement. If you want to know wisdom... You fall on your knees before God in reverence and you recognize your own helplessness to make yourself wise. You cast yourself on the power of God. Now, let me just sum it up because I want to stop in just a moment. Wisdom means behavior strictly and in a limited definition. If you go to the Scripture and you, you see the word wisdom, it's always talking about conduct. But there's a path to that conduct. I must recognize wisdom is with God. I must pursue that. The first aspect of that pursuit is to know God in a true salvation. And then to fear God, that is to worship and adore Him, and then to obey Him. And when I reach the point of obedience... And the wisdom that I have learned from God shows up in the shaping of my life, then I am wise, spiritually wise. And again, I just remind you, young people, you are in the best environment on the face of the earth for this to take place. We know that all true wisdom is with God. You're not an institution that denies that. We also know that you must pursue it. It isn't going to be dropped on you. And so the pursuit of that wisdom is laid before you. And you are challenged to know the Scripture, to know God, to walk in obedience. You are in an environment where you are taught to fear God, to reverence Him as well as, of course, to know Him and to obey Him. When you look at educational opportunity, I just have to say to you from the bottom of my heart, you are sitting in a situation where the premium opportunity is your opportunity to come to the place of true wisdom, which can never happen apart from the knowledge of God, the fear of God, 
and obedience to God, and you know well enough that those are the things which are most on our hearts as we endeavor to lead you in the path of wisdom. You need to thank God for the tremendous privilege you have to be here, and you need, this is my prayer for you, to walk out of this place when you have graduated, when you have completed the course that God has called you to, and you have graduated and walked out of here not saying, look what I know, but saying, I have reached the point of spiritual wisdom because my life follows the path of obedience to the truth of God. That's the goal. This is the best environment in which you can achieve the highest goal that God has laid before us in this life. And I continually pray for you that you'll be faithful to that pursuit as God will be faithful to deliver to you the wisdom He promises.